0: From Diversion Podcasts, in association with iHeartRadio, I'm Gary Myers, and this is the GOAT, Tom Brady. Episode 6, We Are All Patriots. It's the 2001 AFC Championship game, and Drew Bledsoe goes in for an injured Tom Brady in the first half, throws a key touchdown pass in his first action in more than four months, plays really well the rest of the game, and leads the Patriots into the Super Bowl. As Bill Belichick would say, we're on to New Orleans. Will the kid quarterback be healthy enough for Super Bowl 36 against the Rams? Even with a sprained ankle, will Belichick stick with him, or will he go back to Bledsoe, who has already played in one Super Bowl? Of course, despite the uncertainty and drama nearly 20 years ago, we know the answer to my question. Belichick's starter time He led a last-minute drive to win Super Bowl 36, and the legend of Tom Brady was off and running. The enduring sight from the Patriots' first Super Bowl title is Brady standing on the podium at the Super Bowl, wearing a championship hat backwards, and holding his head with both hands. He had a huge smile. He also had a look on his face that pretty much said, Are you freaking kidding me? He was just 24 and a half years old and at the time was the youngest quarterback to win the Super Bowl. In less than two seasons, he had gone from a sixth-round draft pick to rookie fourth-string quarterback to second-string to begin his second season to starter by that season's third game to Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl MVP, icon and heartthrob in Boston. What a journey. Two years later, He was invited to Washington by First Lady Laura Bush for President George W. Bush's State of the Union address. He was in the House chambers two weeks before his second Super Bowl championship. Brady was just a football player who had a Super Bowl ring and was undefeated in beer chugging contests with much larger teammates, and now all these opportunities were coming his way. He was soon endorsing upscale watches and shoes. You can have the pizza commercials, Peyton. But it all comes back to the 2001 season. It catapulted Tom Brady into the national spotlight. Here's Tom.
1: Our team, we had great defense, you know, very good running game. We not it it's not like we are a prolific offense by any sense, you know, but, you know, we found a way to, to win some critical games. I mean, the, the, the playoff run was awesome. And then, you know, to win in the Super Bowl that year.
0: Super Bowl 36. Patriots versus Rams was played in New Orleans less than five months after 9-11. The halftime show was performed by U2. A huge screen brought down from the rafters scrolled through all the names of the victims of the terrorist attacks. It was very powerful. It was also fitting that the Patriots won this most patriotic Super Bowl. Here's Patriots owner Robert Kraft after the game
2: the fans of new england have been waiting 42 years for this day and we are world champions and the Kraft family is happy to be associated with coaches and team players who put team first as the way they came out of the tunnel tonight and in a way the fact that our players and coaches at this time in our country, when people are banding together in a, for a higher cause, can feel this special spirit of America, we're proud to be a symbol of that in a small way. Spirituality, Spirituality, faith and democracy are the cornerstones of our country. We are all Patriots. And tonight, the Patriots are world champions.
0: I mentioned in the last episode that Brady's first career start came against Peyton Manning, and the next episode will be devoted entirely to their incredible rivalry. But all that first victory over Manning and the Colts guaranteed was the Patriots would not go winless in 2001. I know it sounds pretty ridiculous, To say that now, considering New England went on to win the Super Bowl, but the Patriots struggled to an 0-2 start with its veteran quarterback, Drew Bledsoe, and was now starting a backup known only to his family and friends and fans who followed the Big Ten. Brady's second start was forgettable. He threw for only 86 yards and was sacked four times in a 30-10 loss in Miami. For some reason, games in Miami became Brady's kryptonite. It's a good thing he never played a Super Bowl there. In 18 career starts in front of the shorts and bikini crowd, he was 8-10 with 15 interceptions. The next week was the first glimpse of the Brady who would go on to dominate the NFL. In an overtime victory at home against the San Diego Chargers, he attempted 54 passes, completing 33 for 364 yards with two touchdowns and no interceptions. He brought the Patriots from 10 points down in the final few minutes to force overtime and had Chargers coach Mike Riley screaming on the team bus after the game that he told the front office he wanted to draft Brady. Riley's star that day was Doug Flutie. You know who is number two on the Chargers quarterback depth chart? A rookie named Drew Brees. 19 years later, Breeze's Saints beat Brady's Bucks in the season opener in 2020 in Brady's first game with Tampa Bay. Anyway, back to 2001. Brady beat Manning again the next week and was now 3-1 as a starter, and the Patriots were back in business and all even with a 3-3 record. Brady then threw four interceptions and a loss in Denver, one of the worst games of his career, then threw three touchdowns in a victory in Atlanta then beat the Bills even though he threw for only 107 yards, was sacked seven times, threw an interception, and lost a fumble. Whew. those two months went fast. The Patriots were five and four just past the halfway point in the season. Good, not great, but also better than expected. They are running the ball and playing defense, and Brady had turned into a capable game manager. But what now? Belichick had to make what is still the biggest decision in his Patriots' coaching career. Drew Bledsoe was back seven weeks after he almost died. He wanted his job back. The Patriots are just on loan to Brady, or so he thought. Belichick said he would go by what he sees. He stole that line from his mentor turned adversary turned friend again, Bill Parcells. If a coach says he will trust his eyes to make the best decision for the team, it's hard to argue. Unless you are Drew Bledsoe, and Belichick doesn't have eyes for you. Bledsoe had been working with the scout team the previous two weeks. Now he was sharing first-team snaps at practice with Brady. He expected to get his job back. But Belichick was 5-13 with Bledsoe and 5-2 and with Brady. This turned out to be an easy decision. But first, Bledsoe held a press conference at Mass General with his doctors. They announced they had been cleared to return to games. Bledsoe also had been checked out and cleared by five independent specialists. Belichick was happy for Bledsoe's return to health, but he was winning with Brady and there was no need to upset the chemistry and culture that had developed. He said he was being paid by Kraft to make the best decisions for the team. He Even spelled it out. T-E-A-M, Brady would start against the Rams. Bledsoe was not happy, but it was unrealistic for him to believe that after being out all that time, that Belichick would throw him back in after just three days of practice. There was a faction of the Patriots roster known as F-O-B, Friends of Bledsoe. Belichick had to be careful. He didn't want a fractured locker room. Bledsoe was tight with many of the offensive linemen, but Brady was no fool. He knew quarterbacks could not win unless the offensive linemen fight for him. So he invested time his rookie year and second training camp, establishing relationships with the O-line and the rest of his teammates. And since Bledsoe had already endorsed him as a good guy, Brady was already well-liked. As thorough as the Patriots were scouting Brady, they overlooked one of his talents. He's an incredible beer drinker. He has a better record in chugging contests than he does in the Super Bowl. He could drink 300-pound linemen under the table. It was a special talent that he showed off in his college days and single days in the NFL. It endeared him to the guys who would be protecting him. The Patriots held training camp in those years at Bryan College in Smithfield, Rhode Island. In the summer, the players' hangout was Parente's down the street from training camp. Here's what Patriots offensive lineman Damien Woody told me. Brady can pound the drinks now. We go to this establishment and eat and have a couple of drinks. One time Brady came in and the dude, when I say pound it down, he was just pounding it down. Wow, I never knew he can put him away like that. I had new appreciation for him. This guy right there, he's all right. He wasn't a superstar, he was ascending. We had some great times. I asked Dan Copen, a center who joined the Patriots in 2003, if he thought fans would be surprised to find out Brady was just a regular guy with his teammates. You
2: know, people may be surprised, but I guess they shouldn't. He's you know, it's just, it's just a regular guy, who happens to play football, happens to be married to a supermodel. but
0: just normal. Brady's marriage to Brazilian supermodel Giselle Bunchkin didn't come until his early 30s in 2009, but Copen was just trying to make a point. The Patriots lost to the Rams and Brady did not play well. Belichick called Brady and Bledsoe into his office and told them he had made his decision. No more splitting practice reps. Brady would get all the first-team snaps. Bledsoe would not be getting his job back or even be allowed to compete for it. Bledsoe brought his case to Robert Kraft, but Kraft wisely did not step in and overrule his coach. Bledsoe felt Belichick betrayed him, although he admits he never promised him anything. Here's Drew Bledsoe. There was never a promise that uh, you know made from Belichick. I'll be clear about that. There're there, there, there no
3: promises in, in professional sports, and, and anybody that's, that thinks there is, they're, you know, they're just playing you know foolish, and and that's and that's that's no slight on anybody. That's just that's just. The way it is, and I think when uh, when I came back and, and uh, you know my job wasn't there waiting for me, I certainly was was really pissed about that. I mean I, that was I, I didn't really didn't feel like it was right, it felt like I'd been wrong, and all of those things. But 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 that's but, that's life. That's not just life in professional sports. That's that's, that's life in general. And I think that that sometimes you know professional athletes feel like they're entitled to a different level of fair treatment than the general public. And, not the way it works. There's unfairness everywhere. So I, I'm fine with that, you know, at, at this point. But I certainly wasn't fine with it then. Um certainly felt like I'd been wrong.
0: Belichick, of course, made the right decision. As Belichick said at the time, the Patriots were 5-2 and two and not 0-7 during Bledsoe's absence. We'll be back with more of the GOAT, Tom Brady, right after this. After losing to the Rams and declaring Brady his starter for the rest of the season, the Patriots won their last six regular season games. But the Brady-Bledsoe big brother-little brother relationship was first strained and then damaged. It was inevitable, but it wasn't irreparable. There was one job and they both wanted it. Bledsoe never considered Brady as competition until he returned from injury and Belichick clearly had his mind made up that he was not switching back. Dinner at the Bledsoe's for Brady suddenly felt like a long time ago. I asked Bledsoe about how that impacted his relationship with Brady.
3: That did put a strain on my relationship with Tommy, um, even though, you know, I you know, still just fully respected him. And what he, you, know, what he, uh, you know, how hard he worked and what he, was trying, you know, what he was trying to do, and he was just playing football, you know, and... Uh, but yeah, it did. Yeah, it certainly, it certainly was not the same. There's no question about that.
0: How is it now? I mean, do you do you guys stay in touch? Or it's good.
3: It's really, it's really, yeah, no, it's really good. I mean, we we keep in touch. Um, you know, exchange text messages. We saw each other a little bit this winter. My wife and I got to spend some time with him and his family um, over the winter. And uh, you know, he continues to be just a world class human being, and, and uh, you know, married a, a wonderful lady, and. and so, it's yeah, it's very good. There's great mutual respect there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tommy makes that very evident every time, every time I talk to him. It, it, he actually, I'm uh, some, coaching some high school football for my kids now, and he actually uh, uh, asked him to do me a quick favor, he put together a little video for, uh, for our uh, high school team before we faced our inner city, uh, or our crosstown rival uh, this year. And the boys got to watch
0: that, which they thought was pretty cool. It took years, but all is good between them now. I asked Brady about that tape he made for Bledsoe's sons. Drew Bledsoe told me you did a tape for his kid recently. Yeah. Was that like a motivational thing to get him ready for
1: a game? Yeah, they were going to play their arch rival. And, uh, you know, his kids are, uh, you know, younger and in high school era. So, you know, they've been following football, and they've always, you know, been great supporters of me. So, you know, I love Drew. Drew's been like a big brother to me. So, you know, whenever he calls, I'm I'm there to answer the phone whatever he asked, and i'll always do anything for him.
0: but it took he said it, it, it hurt your relationship a little bit what happened in 2001 when he was healthy he didn't play and it took a while to get back to
1: where you were you yeah and a lot of those things were out of our you know it was just the competition it wasn't ever anything personal about drew but it's nice that our relationship has come to the point where it is now where we're great friends and you know we love kind of being together and talking about things and He's still a real great mentor for me,
0: so. In his first game as the Patriots' undisputed starter, Brady threw four touchdowns in a 34-17 victory in New Orleans. It would be the most touchdowns he threw in a game that season. The Patriots followed it up with victories over the Jets, Browns, Bills, Dolphins, and Panthers to finish out the regular season. The Bills game was in Buffalo, and the Patriots won 12-9 in a game without any touchdowns. They won the next week at home against the Dolphins, even though Brady threw for only 108 yards. They ended the regular season strong with a 38-6 victory in Carolina. The Patriots continued to win by relying on their defense and strong running game. They had an 11-5 record and earned the number two seed in the AFC and a first round bye in the playoffs. That gave them a week off before a home playoff game against the Oakland Raiders who beat the New York Jets in the wild card round? The Raiders Patriots game turned out to be one of the most entertaining and impactful playoff games in NFL history, featuring a little-known rule that jumpstarted New England's playoff run. Just as a refresher, the game was played in a blizzard in Foxborough on a Saturday night. The snowball. Football fans love games in the snow. It was great television. The Patriots were trailing 13-10 late in the fourth quarter when Brady was hit by his former University of Michigan teammate, cornerback Charles Woodson, as he attempted to pass. Brady fumbled at the Raiders' 42 with Oakland recovering. There was 1.47 remaining on the clock. The Patriots were out of timeouts. All the Raiders had to do was kneel three times and go home to California. But wait... The replay assistant in the booth wanted the play reviewed by referee Walt Coleman. The fans at Foxborough Stadium waited anxiously as Coleman went under the hood to take a look. The Patriots' season was at stake. Coleman came back onto the field and invoked the obscure tuck rule and reversed the call to an incomplete pass. Patriots ball.
2: The quarterback's arm was going forward. It is an incomplete
0: pass. Coleman ruled that Brady was in the act of throwing the ball. If he had tried to tuck it back into his body, it would have been ruled a fumble. Years later, the NFL wisely dumped the tuck rule. A fumble is a fumble. New England kept possession. Brady's 13-yard completion to David Patton moved the Patriots closer, and Adam Vedateri hit perhaps the most difficult field goal in NFL history when he drilled a low-line drive through the swirling snow and over the crossbar from 45 yards out with 27 seconds left to send the game into overtime. The Patriots then won the overtime coin toss. Brady completed all nine of his passes in a 14-play drive and moved New England into position for Vanatieri's 23-yard game winner. Oakland never got the ball. The Raiders were livid. They felt the game was stolen from them. The Patriots are moving on to the AFC Championship game. If the Patriots had lost that game to the Raiders, would it have slowed down Brady's march to being the GOAT? Yes, of course. Would it have prevented it? Nah, he would have won five Super Bowls instead of six. It's foolish to think that if he had lost that game, that he would not have become a legendary player it just would have taken a bit longer. We'll be right back with more of the GOAT, Tom Brady, in just a moment. One week after the Tuck rule game, the Patriots were in Pittsburgh for the AFC Championship. Bledsoe had not taken one snap in a game since September 23rd, the day he was injured against the Jets. But in Pittsburgh, Brady came up limping after an early hit by linebacker Jason Gildon, and then Lee Flowers knocked him out of the game when he rolled into the back of Brady's left ankle with 140 left in the first half as Brady was completing a 28-yard pass to Troy Brown. The Patriots were now at the Pittsburgh 40-yard line. They were up 7-3. Blitzo was in, and Brady was out. Offensive coordinator Charlie Weiss called four straight pass plays, no matter that Bledsoe had not been on the field in 126 days. He completed all four passes. The last was an 11-yard touchdown to David Patton in the corner of the end zone. It took Bledsoe 42 seconds to go 40 yards. Brady didn't come back into the game. The Patriots won 24-17. Bledsoe threw for 102 yards. Standing on the post-game podium, Drew Bledsoe held the Lamar Hunt AFC trophy in his hands. Tears rolled down his face. The Patriots would have lost without him. He was there when his teammates needed him the most. Four months and four days earlier, Bledsoe nearly lost his life. How could he not be emotional? Usually there are two weeks between the conference championship game and the Super Bowl, which would have given Brady plenty of time to heal. But that year, there was only one week in between the games because of rescheduling following 9-11. Brady's ankle was the number one story when the Patriots and Rams arrived in New Orleans. The Rams were the greatest show on turf and were favored by 14 points. If Brady was healthy enough to play, he would start. Belichick made that clear. But he was going to keep the Rams guessing as long as he could. By midweek, all the reports on Brady's ankle indicated he was going to play. He received treatment all week. Bledsoe was back to the bench. Bledsoe's hope of ever reclaiming his job was dependent of Brady getting hurt again in the Super Bowl or playing poorly. In either case, him getting benched and Bledsoe coming in and winning the game. Neither happened. Bledsoe was officially Wally Pipp. You remember Wally Pipp. He was the Yankees' first baseman in 1925. New York was struggling with a 15 and 26 record when Pipp showed up at Yankee Stadium with a headache. Pipp had knocked in 110 runs in 1924 but was having a bad season in 25. It was his 11th year in the Bronx. The story goes the Yankees trainers gave Pip two aspirin and manager Miller Huggins gave him a seat on the bench. Higgins told Pip, Wally, take the day off. We'll try that kid Gehrig at first base today and get you back in there tomorrow. Huh. Pip never started another game for the Yankees. He was playing in Cincinnati in 1926. Lou Gehrig went on to start 2,130 consecutive games and picked up the nickname, the Iron Horse. Tom Brady turned Drew Bledsoe into Wally Pipp. Bledsoe was traded to Buffalo after the season. Here's Bledsoe. I had a little better career than Wally Pipp. Just for the record, Pipp had a pretty good career. He played 15 years in the big leagues with a career batting average of .281. He had 90 homers and 1,004 RBI. Bledsoe was a team player on Super Bowl Sunday. He started in the Super Bowl five years earlier, in New Orleans in a loss to the Packers. He was fired up in the tunnel before the game, pounding Brady's shoulder pads and yelling encouragement to him. And he was helpful to him all throughout the game. Here's Bledsoe.
3: previous Super Bowl is that no matter what happens, you know, if you losing that game, you get to the ultimate game in the Super Bowl, and you don't win the game, that feels awful. It's worse than never being there. And uh, so I, I just knew that regardless of what happened, you know, in that in that game, that we, we needed to win the game. And uh knew Tommy to play well to do that.
0: The Patriots ran on the field as a team for the pregame introductions. Traditionally, players on the offense or defense are introduced individually but the Patriots wanted to show the football world they stood together. Despite the threat of being fined by the NFL for breaking protocol, Kraft endorsed his players' decision. Here's what Kraft told me.
3: Our team decided to come out as a team, but I was told that we would be fine because, you know, you have a sponsor that pays for the players coming out as individuals. And, you know, I was told we had to do that night back. The team doing it, and you know, I think it's the first time at a Super Bowl that a team ever came out as a team, and it was a
0: pretty cool feeling. The Patriots then pulled off the second greatest upset in Super Bowl history. Number one was Super Bowl three with Joe Namath and the Jets beating the Baltimore Colts. Kraft remembers the feeling on the streets in New Orleans leading up to the game.
3: I, I remember going into New Orleans and still having 9-11 feeling about us and seeing that the whole town was red, white, and blue to honor the military, but, of course, that's all our colors. Mm-hmm. Everything, you know, about the town and the pregame pageantry was so patriotic.
0: In the Super Bowl, the Rams erased a 17-3 to deficit with two fourth-quarter touchdowns. For three quarters, the Patriots had physically dominated St. Louis and beat up on explosive running back Marshall Falk. The Rams tied the game with 90 seconds remaining on Kurt Warner's 26-yard touchdown pass to wide receiver Ricky Prohl. The Patriots took over after the kickoff on their 17 with 1.21 left. The great John Madden, the most respected and revered voice in football, told the 86.8 million viewers on Fox that Belichick should play for overtime and have Brady kneel on the ball. The Patriots didn't have any timeouts left and had poor field position. It was a recipe for disaster, but Venetieri began kicking into the net on the Patriots' sideline. Belichick was going for the win. I asked Vinatieri if he had it in his mind how far he needed Brady to drive New England to get him into comfortable field goal range. When, when you guys got the ball, were you thinking in your head, all right, Tom, just get me to you know, this yard line. You know, That'll be good enough. Did you have it in your head where he needed to get the ball to to have a really good chance no, to win? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I just remember... I think in that time when we got the ball back, I mean, even when they scored to tie it up, and there's a minute and twenty-something seconds, I headed right over to my kicking net, knowing that, hey, you know, we're gonna play to get into field goal range. I mean, unless unless we break something and run for a touchdown with with a minute and a half, that's that's always. Prepare, you know, game-winning field goal situations. So we, we have kind of, you know, every game before the game starts, you kind of sit there and you figure out what your range is and how you're kicking the ball. And, you, you know, you give your coach a number and say, hey, this is the range that we're talking about. But when you're in a dome, that range is pretty far. And, uh, you know, when there's no time left on the clock, you're going to pretty much attempt no matter what the distance is. So I knew once we got to that 30-yard line and it's going to be a 48-yarder, I just I just, my mindset was, you, you got plenty of range. Just get it online and get it down the middle. And fortunately for me, when I when I left my foot, it felt really good. I looked up and said, <laughs> "All right, look." Yeah. I Couldn't believe that all of our hard work and our dreams and that year came to an end, especially that way. So it was pretty awesome. So he
0: actually gave you a couple more yards than, than you than maybe in your head <laughs> yeah, you thought. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I would say I would say a range, especially Super Bowl, and you're fired up and you've got a lot of adrenaline going. I would say anything inside of 60 was definitely going to be an
0: attempt.
1: You know what I yeah, mean? Now, yeah. The closer you get, the higher your field goal percentage goes up. But I, I think anything inside of 60 yards, we definitely would have tried.
0: Belichick displayed remarkable faith in Brady putting the Super Bowl in his hands. Prior to the last drive, he'd only thrown for 92 yards. One mistake deep in his own end, and the Rams would be in position for the winning field goal. But Brady completed five of seven passes for 53 yards. The biggest one, 23 yards to Troy Brown. And the final one, a six yard completion to tight end Jermaine Wiggins. The Patriots were at the Rams 30 yard line and the clock was running. No timeouts. Remember the Patriots did not have any timeouts left. Brady calmly got New England, set up the line of scrimmage, making sure there were no false starts and spiked the ball with seven seconds left. The game shifted from Brady's right arm to Venetieri's right foot. Here's Vinatieri. What do you think the degree of confidence was that Tom could get you into field goal range? You know,
1: if, if you recall back to that season, we had a lot of close games. I think, including the Super Bowl, I think I had five game winning kicks that season, which. I'm not talking anything about my stuff. I'm just saying that we were in a lot of right. games and we won, I think, pretty much all of them that came down to the wire like that. I think we found a way to get it done. So going into that part, we, uh, I knew, uh, at least I had all the confidence in the world that
0: just one more time. I was at that game and it's a vast understatement to say that Brady was excited on the podium after the victory.
1: Dream come true, dream come true, Super Bowl champs. We, whenever we've had our backs against the wall, we've responded, all year. could have been last week in Pittsburgh, Drew comes in and throws touchdown passes. Um, you know, all year, Oakland game, Adam kicks the game winner, it just, uh,
2: it's it's awesome. To have all the Patriot fans here, bring your championship home to Boston.
0: Brady was named Super Bowl MVP. On virtually no sleep at the MVP press conference, the morning after the game, Brady said he would never get complacent and would never stop working hard. He should have added that he would never stop winning Super Bowl championships. On the next episode of The GOAT, Tom Brady, you will hear from Tom and you will hear from Peyton Manning and their fathers and teammates about their incredible rivalry that defined an entire era of the NFL. I'm Gary Myers, And thanks so much for listening. The Goat, Tom Brady, is a production of Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by me, Gary Myers, executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis for Diversion Podcast, and Sean Titone for iHeartRadio. Story editing by Scott Waxman, with editorial direction from John Tuttle. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. Archival research by Brianne Murphy. Verna Fields is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Find Diversion on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Diversion And let us know what do you think of the show Send us your questions, your comments, and even your critiques. That's Diversion Pods on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Diversion Podcasts.